Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Welcome to Journey Church. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the teachers here at Journey, and so it's been an honor to, uh, to open God's Word over the last 10 months together. Uh, we are in a series that we're calling Firm Foundation as we're looking at kind of this idea of new year, which typically for a lot of us brings new goals, new ambitions, uh, you know, just, just new desires a lot of times, new, uh, just all kinds of different things that we might want to implement in our lives, new rhythms. And so it's just a good time of year to really look at uh, when you're thinking about new ambitions, what might need to be kind of underlaid. By the way, if you are a child that's going to the back, now's the time to go. I was like, did I say something? Oh, wait, that's because they're supposed to be leaving right now. But, but as I said, Firm Foundations is this idea that, that in, in the midst of new chapters, new seasons in life, that, that it's always good as you want to build things, build dreams, build ambition, that you have a foundation under which you build. And it's not just the fact that it's 2023 and individually we might have these goals or desires, but it's also about to be a, a transition time, a new chapter for Journey Church as we have... Uh, called our new pastor, Daniel and Rena White are on their way in the next month. It's a good time for us, again, just to kind of look at what is the foundation that we want to build on. And so that's where we have been doing, because when you build anything, it takes planning. And when you plan, the first thing that you need is a foundation. And so what we've done, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in the series. So what we've done just kind of as a refresher for you, is the first week uh, on New Year's Day, we talked about it's a new year, but we have the same God. And really had just kind of the idea that the base of reality is that underneath all things behind creation itself is a powerful and wise and sovereign God who is also loving, kind, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that Hebrew says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That even though there's a new year with new ambitions, we need to build it on the foundation that we have the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And then we built off of that into new year, same gospel. That though he made us in his image, we have rebelled against him to we were made to reflect his glory. Instead, we are glory seeking for ourselves. We have, we have turned away from God. And yet in, as I said earlier, his loving kindness and mercy, he pursues us. He crosses the chasm that we've created by our sin. He crosses the chasm to come to us, to redeem us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's new year, same gospel. And then we said last time, new year, same story, that those of us who've professed faith in Christ have been given the spirit and we are now empowered to share the gospel, to make disciples to the ends of the earth. That, that, as we said, that the glory of the Lord would fill the earth as waters cover the sea. And we talked about the fact that it's the same story, that there's different chapters in the story and that there's a creation chapter, there's a fall chapter, but then there is a story of redemption. And ultimately there'll be a story of consummation, a chapter where God will come in and fully redeem and restore all things. That right now, our place in the story is in this overlap of new creation because Paul says that when you're in Christ, you're a new creation, that the resurrection was the dawning of a new creation and yet we still live in an old and dying creation. So that's where we've been. This is the foundation we've laid. Same God, same gospel, same story, even though it's a new year. But now the question is, how do we move forward? Like we know where to make disciples 
in all the earth, but how are we to build on this foundation? And not just how, but like, what are we to build on this foundation? What type of people are we supposed to be in every chapter of our lives? What ultimately is the type of life that we should be building on this foundation? So that's where we're gonna close our series today, New Year, Same Pursuit. And as we consider what we should be pursuing with our lives and in our lives on top of this firm foundation, we're gonna be examining Titus chapter two, verses 11 through 14. And when we do that, we're gonna see three things that I wanna talk about this morning. We're gonna look at the root of our pursuit. We're gonna look at the fruit of our pursuit. Now, I'm not trying to be clever. It might look like it. Um, But I think those are both in the passage and true, but also easy to remember. So the root of our pursuit, the fruit of our pursuit, and this is not gonna be anything like that, the gospel-shaped trajectory of following Jesus. I couldn't think of one that would rhyme, so. So the root, the fruit, and then the gospel-shaped trajectory of following Jesus. So let's just start here with the root of our pursuit. And before we dive into Titus chapter two, as I've said often, you, you wanna look at where you've been when you're reading a letter. And so we're not gonna go through the first two chapters, but I do wanna just kind of lay out for you what's going on. This, this is a letter that Paul is writing to one of his protégés, to, to a, what he's calling in the text, a child of his in the faith, uh, someone that he's discipled and that apparently... Paul has planted these churches in Crete and now he has left Titus there to appoint elders. We, we read that in verse five of chapter one that, that Paul has basically said, I've left you in Crete to, to basically organize the church there in Crete. I want elders in every town. And then he begins to talk about, we've gotta, we gotta be careful there's false teaching out there. And so he's, he's helping Titus be able to navigate what the false teaching might look like. And, and then this is what he says at the end, talking about false teachers and talking about other people who have been disobedient. Verse 16 of chapter one, Paul says this, they, referring to the false teachers and disobedient, profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Paul draws a line between the foundation of knowing God, the unchanging God, and our works. Because for Paul, and really in the scriptures overall, there's an inherent incompatibility between saying we know the unchanging God, but living lives that are unchanged by God. There's an inherent incompatibility between saying we know the unchanging God but then living lives that are unchanged by God. And we know this to be true, right? I mean, we know that hypocrisy is one of the largest reasons that, at least that I've heard, people kind of pushing against the church and the claims of Christianity. It's not as much that they're pushing back against Jesus, although some obviously do, and it's not that they're necessarily even pushing back against what he said, although some clearly do. But for a lot of people right now, especially in the cultural South, the Christian cultural South, what they're pushing back against is people who claim to represent him, but they, you look at their life and it looks nothing like Jesus. Now, I know a lot of you out there have probably listened to a lot of hip hop today and over the last little bit, but if you haven't, Uh, There's a line by a Christian uh, hip hop artist named KB and no big deal, but it doesn't look like no big deal. Just so you know, if you're like, don't search it, it's anyway, he spells it funny, but they have a song called King Jesus. And this is what they say in King Jesus. People don't care if you keep Christ in your Christmas, if they cannot see that there's Christ in the Christian. 
People don't care if you keep Christ in your Christmas if they cannot see that there's Christ in the Christian. Paul is drawing a conclusion just like KB, that if you claim to know Jesus, but you deny him by your works, something at best, something is off. And at worst, you don't really know him. So this sets us up. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. And then he launches into chapter two where he explains how the saints in Crete should live their lives and how they should actually live their lives both singularly and then even collectively. He, he talks about old men and, and young men and how they should interact. He talks about older women and younger women. And I said older, not old, right? Just older women. Uh, and how they interact with the younger women in the church. And, and it's in all of this, he even says that the way he does this in verse one of chapter two is he says, teach them, talking to Titus, what accords with sound doctrine. And then sound doctrine apparently launches into the way we actually live our lives, that doctrine and the way we live, they should be compatible. In fact, he even says in verse one of the entire letter that the knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. You just cannot get out of Titus anything other than the fact that what we say we believe and the foundation we've built our life on actually impacts the way that we live. And so he launches into the way the church is to engage. And all of this leads up to chapter, 11, or chapter two, verse 11, where Paul says this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That little sentence has so much packed into it for us this morning, especially in regards to the root of our pursuit. First, just look at the first word, for, as I've already been trying to explain, that this stems, Paul is saying that what he's about to say is basically stemming from everything he has just said, that, that all of the, the put elders in place, watch out for false teachers. They deny him by their works. This is the way we relate to one another. All of those things are building up. And then he complements all of that teaching with the word for. So what he's about to say has direct impact on what he has just said. And he says, the grace of God has appeared. What does that, what does that mean? Well, the grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. And what does it mean that grace has appeared. Well, we can get a little bit of a clue from another text that Paul wrote to another disciple of his named Timothy. And if you look at 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, this is what Paul says. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I'm gonna stop there for a second. Before the ages began, before the ages began, God had a holy calling, a purpose, and grace for those who would put their faith in Christ. It's, it's not that you were just given grace before you were born, that you were called and given grace before anyone was born. This is what Paul is saying. This is how deep our roots go that our root is sure because before the foundation of the world, before the ages began, God purposed a calling and grace on our life. And then verse 10, and which now has been manifested through what? The appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace has appeared for grace has appeared. 
The grace of God appeared from outside of us, but for us. And the grace of God appeared, Paul says, not by our works, but for his purposes did God bestow his grace on us. God shows his people grace through faith in Jesus on purpose and for a purpose. But not only has the grace of God appeared, Paul says it brings salvation to all people. Now, even just within the context of this passage, you can see that this is not teaching universalism that all people are saved because as we'll see in the next few verses, he's clearly identifying these traits towards certain people. But what he is teaching then is one of two things, that all people would either be ethnicities, that, that like Revelation says, that every tribe and tongue will appear before the throne of Christ. Or it could be that he's offering it to all people. Both of those are true. But what I really want us to hone in on is not the saving all people, but what does Paul mean by salvation? Because I think for a lot of us growing up in evangelical churches, if you did, you think about salvation in one of two ways. You think about being saved like when you put your faith in Christ, like I got saved today, or I was saved on this day when I prayed this prayer or whatever. And then others of us, we think about being saved more like at the end, like salvation is that when, when we go to heaven, when we die. And what, for Paul, it's, it's not that neither of those are being saved, it's that those are incomplete. Because for Paul, salvation means from the moment you profess faith all the way till consummation when God comes and restores all things. And, and I just wanna show you that out of Romans because what, what does salvation mean? Well, for Paul, salvation means being saved from the penalty of sin, Romans 6.23. That's both in a moment, justification, and is also in the end. You also have that we're saved from the power of sin as we are now dead to the law and now belong to Christ so that we may bear fruit. That's Romans 7.14 or 7.4, excuse me. We're saved from the identity of sin. Like we're no longer children of darkness or of wrath, but rather we are children of God. That is Romans 8, 14 and 15. We're saved from hostility with God into peace with God. That's Romans 5, 1. We're saved from slavery to sin and now are slaves to righteousness. That's Romans 6, 17 and 18. We're saved into the love of God in all circumstances for which nothing can separate us, Romans 8, 38 and 39. And we're saved from dying ourselves as a sacrifice for our sins because Christ did that already. Now we can be living sacrifices for God, Romans 12, 1 and 2. We are saved, bringing salvation that's from start to finish, that God completes the work in our lives, that we are saved from the penalty, the power, and one day the presence of sin in our lives. And one of the ways that we are saved and are able to live lives this way, as we said last time, is Acts 1.8, that we have been empowered, that the Holy Spirit will empower you. He will come upon you and bring power to be witnesses. And one of the ways that we're witnesses is not, is not only sharing the gospel, although that is primarily what, what we do, but the Spirit empowers us to actually live lives free of the power of sin. The root of our pursuit, it's, it's, it's deep and it's the grace of God. Don't lose sight of the root for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. The root of this pursuit of God is the grace of God. And there might be a lot of times in your life when you, like, you feel like you failed and maybe you have. Because one thing it doesn't do is train us to perfection. So there might be some times that you have failed 
And that's why it's so important that we understand the root of our pursuit. Because if we miss the root of our pursuit, we either wither with shallow roots in the seasons of our life where instead of running towards God and our Christian walk, we're stumbling. And if, that's our, if our root isn't deep enough, we don't understand that the root is the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will wither in a heartbeat. When we focus on our performance, it creates shallow roots. It makes for a weak foundation. This is why New Year, same pursuit is the last message in the series. It's on purpose. Because while it's true, we have to build our pursuit on the strong, firm foundation that we have a unchanging God who loves us and gave himself for us and has empowered us by his spirit. If we don't build on that, it's shallow, it will wither, we will fade away. Root your effort for God in the sufficiency of God's grace for you. But with a healthy root, like the grace of God, should grow fruit in a lifelong pursuit of good works. Notice how Paul continues in verse 12. Picking back up in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. How many of you ever trained for something? Like, no way. What? I've seen some of you in the gym this week. Maybe not by March, but I've seen you this week. How many of you trained for something? Let's try that again. Nope. I mean, surely, okay, we've all trained for something. We understand what training means. This is going to be participatory, okay? I'm not up here. Anyway, all right. So you've trained for different things, right? You train for tests. Like you take the ACT. I remember when I did that, uh, I would read the book and try to figure out how to get a better score. Uh, you train for tests like ACTs. You, you might train for your job or a specific task at your job. You train for athletic things like CrossFit or other things at the gym. You train for, for 5Ks, marathons. Like we understand when playing a sport that training is involved because training has intentionality to it. There, there's a reason that we train. I, I remember a few years ago, there was a cause for somebody that I knew that had died of cancer. And so we, the cause was like a 5K. And so we, we ran in it or I ran in it. Jenny Beth had Brooks in the stroller. And so uh, she was walking it, but, but I, we, we signed up for it. Now, I didn't train for it, like at all. I mean, I may have lifted some weights or whatever, but that's it. Like there's no, I don't, I don't run unless someone's chasing me or I'm trying to get away from something. And so I'm like, but I'm gonna do this for him. So I, I show up at the 5K, no training. Uh, and my goal was just simply like, don't walk. Like even if people had to go, is he walking? It's not sure. I'd be like, no, it looks like a walk, but I promise you it's one step faster than a walk. So like my goal was just to finish without walking. And I did. And so, you know, I crossed the line, uh, you know, they get the chip on your shoe or whatever. So I go and turn my chip in and believe it or not, as I turn my chip in, the lady goes, you finished third in your age group. Now, when you're my age, you need to have age groups if you want a place at all. So I was like, cool. What's the age group? It was like 30s. And I'm like, well, I'm on the upper end of that. Is there any way we could, at the time that was the case? So yes, I finished third. So I'm like thinking about, man, I'm gonna be on the podium, yo. Like it's gonna be legit. <laughs> and I didn't even train. Like imagine if I trained. 
And so I'm thinking like, how am I gonna tell my wife when she gets here about like, I finished third. So I walk up to her and I'm just like, hey, I know it's, a, it's not a huge race, but it's quite a few people in it. And I said, how many are in my age group? I'm just curious, three. <laughs> but I still finished third. Right, so like we understand like when you train, you gotta have, if you don't train, you have to have like realistic expectations. But then I remember in high school, was really the first time I ever really trained for anything. I played football. I know you probably look at me more like a football watcher, but I am a football player, even though I'm built more like a reader. And so I, I would train and I would try to get stronger. And, and I was a receiver. And so typically when I went in the game, I was going in with a run play. And if you don't follow football, that's not what you want as a receiver. That doesn't show a lot of confidence in you. But I worked really hard all the off seasons and, and build up my strength. And so by the time my senior year came around, we made the playoffs like the first time in 20 some odd years um, because of my good run blocking, um, we made it. And so my coach told me the, the day before the, or the week of the playoff game, he, he said to me, I want, you to know, I want you to know that I have seen you train. Like I, I've watched you work really hard for three years and you may not be the fastest and you may not be the strongest, but I want you to know, I, I see that I'm rewarding you and I'm gonna, I'm gonna call a pass play for you in the playoff game. And I was just like, I was on cloud nine. Went home, told my parents, I'm like, he's gonna throw, a, throw me the ball as a receiver. Uh, I mean, it was exciting. And, and all that to say, like in the game, I run the play in, I tell them the, the play, I go on this uh, deep route and I, I'm probably embellishing it a little bit, but in my mind, like I jumped up I grabbed that ball. I went down, got one of the only first downs we had in the game. We lost the game. It was terrible. But all I'd say, was I nervous? Yes. But was I confident? Yes. Because I'd trained for it. Now, that's a lot. That's a long story. And a lot of, of just application can be found in that. Because in the end, being trained sets us up for success. And being trained in something creates rhythms that we can repeat and Paul says that the grace of God that appeared trains us. It trains us. Grace may come from outside us, but it does something inside us to then be displayed by us. Grace comes from outside us, but it should be doing something inside us to then be displayed by our lives. So what does it train us for? Well, Paul says it trains us away from some things and toward some other things. The word Paul even uses here, let's look at what it trains us away from because the word he uses here for, that's translated renouncing is the same Greek word used for deny in chapter one, verse 16, where he says that they deny him by their works. It's like they renounce God, these false teachers, these disobedient, they renounce God by their works. It's also the same word that's used for Peter's denying of Christ on the night that he was betrayed. It is a strong word. And Paul is saying with this strong word that we are to deny, to renounce with conviction ungodliness in our lives and worldly passions. Christians are known for renouncing ungodliness in the world. Christians are known for renouncing worldly passions in our culture. But notice that Paul qualifies this by saying us. 
It trains us. Christians who have received the grace of God are trained to renounce ungodliness in our hearts. Passions that are incongruent with God were to deny, to renounce those compulsions that we feel. As we talked about in the story, like we were created in the image of God, but yet creation rebelled from God. There's a brokenness to creation and that we're in this overlap of new and old creation. So there's gonna be times where your spirit wants to do something and your flesh has a compulsion or an impulse that is just not right. And in that moment, while we're quick to condemn people in the world for those moments, we are oftentimes don't really fight it. Do you fight? Do you renounce those compulsions and those impulses that come up in your heart of anger or greed or jealousy or lust or dishonesty? Do you renounce ungodliness? Because Paul says that the grace of God trains us to renounce it, to deny it. But not only that, it trains us towards some other things. Grace of God trains us towards self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And this might come across vague to you. Like, what does that mean, self-control? I mean, I know what self-control means, but I, don't, I need a picture of what self-controlled, godly, upright life, living is. And in some degree, he does get into more specifics, like I already mentioned earlier in chapter 2, and even again a little bit later in chapter 3 of his letter But I think ultimately, there's a reason why the call here to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives is a little broad. And that's because we typically tend to confuse the fruit for the root. And if he was to line out, these are the things you were to do, it would be easy for us to then try to find our root in trying to do these things. Really, what self-controlled, upright, godly living sounds like is it sounds like Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. What if, just a thought question, what if in our city, in our moment in history, Journey Church, we were known more for what we are against in ourselves? And we were known to be some of the most loving joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, faithful, and self-controlled people know. How might that type of fruit in our pursuit of godly lives in this present age make kingdom impacts here and around the world? It's an exciting and it's a beautiful image and vision of what we can be and what we're called to be. But I think a lot of times if we look in the mirror, we don't see that. I don't always see that. And the reality is we we won't always see that. And so it's vital for us to see how connected all this is for Paul. And therefore, by extension, how connected all this should be for us because there is a trajectory to our sanctification, 
to our growing in holiness across a lifetime. And as Daniel said last week, and I've said really a lot in 10 months, like 2 Corinthians 3.18 is vital in the way that you understand sanctification. That it's progressive, it's one degree at a time. A lot of us want it to be 30 degrees at a time, 40 degrees at a time. But 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that it is one degree that we are transformed by beholding the glory of Christ in the gospel. We are transformed one degree at a time into the image of Christ. It is a progressive sanctification. And so we have to understand that as we look at our pursuit and we place it down on this firm foundation because that's what Paul does. He concludes this passage with a gospel-shaped trajectory of following Jesus on a firm foundation. I'm gonna start it over at 11. I'm gonna read the whole passage now. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Goodness, there's so much in that. But just notice how Paul roots the pursuit of our lives back on top of a firm foundation. We see in here the unchanging God. Now, I may not say that he's an unchanging God, but Jesus, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, what does he say about him that we wait for him? That all of our hope is in the unchanging God. And notice that he says too, it's, it talks about the story, like where we're at in the story. The grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ. And yet the grace of God will reappear when Jesus returns, that we are in the midst of this story that God is writing across history. And that in the midst of that, Paul is placing us, he's anchoring us on this firm foundation that we have a blessed hope in this in-between time of new and old creation overlapping as we pursue godly lives. And you might think, well, how can we have a hope when Jesus returns? That sounds scary. And for some, it might be. But for those who are in Christ, look at what he did. Verse 14, this is same gospel. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, not a person necessarily only, but a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Don't you see, as we strive to live godly lives in this present age, as we pursue that with our lives, we must build our lives on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are his possession and he delights in us. As crazy as that might sound. I read a tweet this week. Um, Dane Ortland tweeted it, but he was quoting Sam Alberry. And here's what Sam Alberry said. We don't ever really say to God, I love you. We only ever say, I love you too. In the gospel of grace, 
God's posture to you in your pursuit, whether you're running or stumbling forward, is always and ever, I love you first. Always and ever. In the gospel, God speaks a better word than the voice of condemnation in your head when you fall. The gospel speaks the complete truth of Christ's redemption over you, but the gospel doesn't make us lazy. It trains us to live godly lives in this present age so that we can be zealous for good works. And the gospel draws us back into the love of God when we stumble so he can pick us up and set us straight on the path to be his witnesses. Not witnesses of our own moral awesomeness, but witnesses of his lavish grace that is producing in us fruit that is rooted in his goodness and grace. The sign of Christian maturity is not that you never fail. It's what you do when you fail. Do you hide from God or do you run to him? The gospel of grace speaks a better word. Brothers and sisters, is there any pursuit in this life that we should be more zealous for? I would argue there's not. May this be so for us. As we close as a call to action this morning, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, if you would just be honest or online watching and say like, I just, I'm not following Jesus. I don't, never really have tried to. Maybe you're just checking this out. Maybe you, you have thought for years you are and you're starting to realize that I'm denying him by my works. And it doesn't mean that you're gonna live a perfect life. When it, that's not the juxtaposition here, like denying him by works or perfection. But it does mean that there's a pursuit of him. There's a desire to honor him, to be with him. So if you're here today or if you're online and you just go like, I'm not following Jesus, my, the, the call to action for you is the grace of God has appeared. And he can bring salvation to you today. And it can begin today by faith in Christ and what he took on your behalf as your substitute on the cross, living the life that you couldn't live, dying the death we all deserve to die and rising to life, to have victory over sin and death. That can be your starting point today and it can be something that you look forward to, that you wait with hope for the reappearing of Christ and in the in-between time, he is training you, he is changing you one degree at a time. That can be your story today. You can start today and if that's you, find me or Kevin or any of the leaders, anyone out there with a name tag on the welcome desk, we would love to help you and talk to you. And if you're here today, like a lot of you probably are as followers of Jesus, I just wanna encourage you to be trained by grace for the fruitful life that you desire. See, a lot of times the enemy makes us think we don't really desire this type of life that it's not a life that leads to joy, it's, it's slavery. And Paul does say we're slaves to righteousness, but 
but it's actually the life you desire. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been given, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. That's why when, you, when you're running from God, there's conflict in your heart because there's a desire that you've now been made for that is in conflict with what you're chasing. Would you be trained by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God for the life that you desire to be zealous for good works and to know that when you stumble and fall, He loves you first. Let's pray. Our Father, we are your people. And we're only your people, of your a people of your possession that you have purified because of grace. Thank you for grace. And sometimes it can feel overwhelming, just the 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 call to pursue upright and self-controlled and godly lives in the present age, it can feel like a big, overwhelming call. Father, would you encourage us today that Spirit has empowered us and that our root is not our fruit, but it is the grace of Lord Jesus Christ. Would you remind us of that? Would you, would you block the enemy and the lies that come into our mind when we fail as your people that condemns us? And would you woo us back so that we can boast in the transforming, lavish grace and love of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and be zealous for the works that you've created us to do before the world began. We love you. We love you too. In Jesus' name, amen.